Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be soldier for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the, to be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servant of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good of the Gentiles, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit it is if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you may follow his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither deceit, deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to his just, to him who just justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wound you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherds and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we continue our series in First Peter, and First um, Peter is about giving us a picture of identity, who we are in Christ, and then applying it to life, uh, very real circumstances, in the sight of the community that doesn't necessarily understand or agree with how we live or what we believe in. Uh, Peter said that the purpose of his letter is to describe what the true grace of God is and to encourage us to stand firm in it. So there's two kind of two big parts of the letter. The first is what this true grace is, describing what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. But then he moves into the practice of it. How do we practice this new identity? And so we are right at that point today. So we're moving from doctrine to practice in some ways. And he is very much concerned that this identity, as he calls us, elect exiles, loved by God, but yet uh, uh, secure in our relationship with him and yet not belonging in this world, that identity. He takes that and he wants us to now apply it as we live out our lives in front of our unbelieving neighbors. So that's kind of the, the whole point. And then in verse 11 is where it switches, where it moves from doctrine to practice. In verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Beloved, so loved by God, loved by Him. That's our identity in Christ. Now I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Notice the tension with the world, the tension with the culture. 
Now live out this identity in that tension as spiritual immigrants and refugees in the world. All right, so as he moves into this very practical part of the letter, and this was surprising to me, so I don't know. Many of you are better Bible scholars than me, so you're probably saying that's old news to me, but I was surprised when I was reading this this week. There's one clear theme that emerges in this whole section of how we are to live in the world as God's beloved people. And the theme is submission. It's submission. I, I saw submission in this text, but I didn't see it in the rest of the letter until I looked and I noticed that it repeats over and over again in the course of the rest of the letter. So, for example, in our text, flesh must submit to the Spirit in verse 10 of chapter 2. Then people submit to institutions, to the government in 13. Servants submit to masters in 18, but then it keeps going. Wives submit to husbands in 3 verse 1, and we'll deal with, with that specifically next week, okay? So I'm going to leave it off till that, but it's part of the same theme. Angels submit to Christ in 3.22. Young people submit to elders in 5, verse 5. So you see this theme developing throughout the rest of the letter. As Peter thinks about how we are to live out our identity in the world, his one big virtue for us to cultivate and exhibit to the world is submission. It's submission. Servanthood. This is the one quality he wants us to focus on. Now, as I spend more time in this passage, I became convinced that it makes perfect sense to prioritize submission in our gospel witness. And I hope that by the end of the sermon, you will be convinced as well if you are not already. What I want to do is I want to look at us being God's servants in our culture. Then I'm going to talk about how our servanthood portrays the gospel to the culture. And then finally, we'll see how Jesus, the servant God, gives us motivation and a template for that kind of life. So God's servants, number one, the gospel of God's servants, number two, and the servant God, number three. Okay, so let me begin with some cultural commentary. I know how much you love it when I give you my thoughts on the culture, my musings on, on the culture. I'm going to give you a rather lengthy quote, but it's a fun quote, I promise, that describes the world around us and describes the need for the gospel to connect with it. It comes from David Brooks, and it's about commencement speeches. Now listen to this. Every society has a way of transmitting its values to the young. Some societies do it through religious festivals or military parades. One of the ways we do it is through a secular sermon called the commencement address. Colleges generally ask a person, distinguished by a fantastic career, to give a speech in which they claim that career success is not that important. Then these phenomenally accomplished individuals often go on to tell their audiences that you shouldn't be afraid to fail. From this, from this young people learn that failure can be wonderful if you happen to be J.K. Rowling, Denzel Washington, or Steve Jobs. 
But this lesson is not the only advice we in the middle-aged commencement-given world offer young adults. We use these speeches to pass along the dominant values of our age. We hand them over like some great, awesome presents. And it turns out these presents are great big boxes of nothing. Many young people are graduating into limbo. Floating and plagued by uncertainty, they want to know what specifically they should do with their lives. So we hand them the great empty box of freedom. The purpose of life is to be free. Freedom leads to happiness. We're not going to impose anything on you or tell you what to do. We give you your liberated self to explore. Enjoy your freedom. The students in the audience put down that empty box because they are drowning in freedom. What they're looking for is direction. What is freedom for? How do I know which path is my path? So we hand them another big box of nothing, the big box of possibility. Your future is limitless. You can do anything you set your mind to. The journey is the destination. Take risks, be audacious, dream big. But this mantra doesn't help them either. If you don't know what your life is for, how does it help to be told that your future is limitless? That just ups the pressure. So they put down that empty box. They're looking for a source of wisdom. Where can I find the answers to my big questions? So we hand them the empty box of authenticity. Look inside yourself. Find your true inner passion. You are amazing. Awaken the giant within. Live according to your own true way. You do you. This is useless too. The you we tell them to consult for life's answers is the very thing that hasn't yet formed. So they put down that empty box and ask, what can I devote myself to? What cause will inspire me and give meaning and direction to my life? At this point, we hand them the emptiest box of all, the box of autonomy. You are on your own, we tell them. It's up to you to define your own values. No one else can tell you what's right or wrong for you. Your truth is to be found in your own way through your story that you tell about yourself. Do what you love. If this is an accurate description of the emerging gener generation, which I think it is, I think that is the general cultural setting that we're in, do you think Christianity has any wisdom to offer, any direction at all, to somebody who's wrestling with these big questions? Do you think the gospel has anything to say about the real self, the power of hope, the purpose of life, the nature of freedom? I think it has a ton to say about all these things. I think we can connect with all these issues. The lack of direction, the understanding of freedom, who am I, my identity, what do I devote my life to? We have, by the way, answers to all these questions. Yes, we do. Because God told us these, questions, these answers. We have His ideas of how we are to live. And all these connections can and must be made. But the next question we must ask, well, how do we do that? How do we present this gospel that connects so well with all these big questions to a culture of people who are looking for answers, who are trying to figure it out, supposedly? How do we connect the gospel to them? How do we bring it to them? 
Now, the two concerns in presenting the gospel to the world, to any world, but specifically to our world, one is dispelling ignorance, and second is highlighting usefulness of the gospel. Now, look at Peter, what he says in verse 15. He says that by living in a certain way, Christians can put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There's a lot of misconceptions about Christianity. Now, some innocently held, some deliberately propagated and used to marginalize Christians. Now, for example, the early Christians, first century Christians, were thought to be atheists because they did not worship the gods of the empire. They were thought to be cannibals because they claimed to eat the body and blood of Christ. They were thought to be traitors because they acknowledged Jesus as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. They were suspected of incest because every week they gathered with their brothers and sisters for what they called a love feast. Now these rumors and and myths needed to be corrected. That ignorance needed to be dispelled. But as that ignorance is being dispelled, Christianity also needs to be seen as useful to the world. Peter says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word translated honorable is the same word used for good deeds. So good and honorable is the same word, and it means excellent or beautiful or admirable or commendable. The idea here is that our Christian lifestyle presents the gospel. It should present the gospel as something attractive, something worth considering for the world. So as the world is drowning in the wrong understanding of freedom, as the world is searching for identity, as the world is limited by their own autonomy, as the Lord is trying to figure out what it means to dream big and how do I run my life, here comes the gospel with the answers. And it has to be clarified, right? So people know what it is. We have to dispel the myths. But then we also need to present it as something that connects with people, as something that makes sense, something that is desirable, even if it is rejected. People need to know what they're rejecting specifically. So how does Peter suggest that we communicate that gospel in a clear way and in a way that makes at least some people consider it as the answer to their real questions. Well, imagine being a small community of immigrants in a foreign country. How would you go about dispelling the misconceptions about your people? All the myths, all the suspicions that that grow around you. How would you share the best parts of your culture with others? What would you do? That's actually the question that the church must ask today. What should we do to to clarify who we are, to clarify what we believe, and then to make that message accessible, worthy of consideration, beautiful, excellent. Now, Peter's strategy, which he has devised for the Christian elect exiles of the first century Roman Empire, and I believe that works just as well for us today, His strategy is to cultivate and exhibit submission. That's his strategy. 
The gospel is clarified and made desirable through the servanthood of God's people, according to this text. Peter sees a strong connection between our submission to God and our submission to others. To be God's servants in the world, we must be servants of others. So how do we connect this great gospel to the real questions of people around us? How do we clarify it? How do we make it desirable? We do so by living submissive lives. That's what Peter is saying. Are you surprised now? Because I was surprised by that. Let's work through it. Let's look at this gospel and how it's communicated through this submissive lifestyle. I must be brief. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of these three aspects that Peter gives us, but I want you to see the logic, and maybe then you can work it out the rest of the week kind of on your own, some of the specifics of that. But I think the logic would be clear, will be clear here. What does our submission tell the world about the gospel? Well, here's the three examples of submission and what the gospel, how the gospel is presented in each. First, there's submission of the flesh to the Spirit. Submission of the flesh to the Spirit. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The command here is to not give in to your fleshly passions, not to follow your natural sinful inclinations. I think it means sexual temptation. I think it means treating others poorly. I think it means greed. I think it means a lot of other things. But things that come out of your flesh, which is the Bible's way of, exp- of, of defining kind of that sinful nature within you, the unrestrained desire to do something for yourself. And Scripture tells us that has to be controlled by the Spirit because it's this waging war against your soul. And for a Christian, the Holy Spirit is governing our flesh. So when Christians abstain from the passions of the flesh, when we submit our flesh to the Spirit and fight our sinful desires, we give the world a true picture of the human self. We give the world a true picture of the human self. So how is the gospel clarified and presented to the world? Through the submission of the flesh to the Spirit, the world can learn what the true human self is. We are not just bodies. We are not just political animals. We are not just consumers. We're also souls. Pursuing our natural physical desires without their assessment and direction by something outside of the material, outside of the physical, leads to harm. Left unchecked and unrestricted, Our passions cause spiritual harm to us and to others. To the world that reduces authenticity of the self to the expression and fulfillment of any desire at any time, the gospel presents a much more holistic view of humanity. Authenticity is found in bringing your physical and spiritual natures together under the right guidance. It is cultivating the right desires. So when Christians submit their desires to the Holy Spirit and fight their flesh, which is what every Christian must do, 
by resisting sexual temptation or refusing to seek approval of others or by not elevating yourself by putting others down or by declining to please yourself by hurting others or by fasting or by hospitality or by generous giving. When we do that and we submit our flesh to the Spirit, we present the gospel as a real hope to people in the world of finally figuring out who they are. In the world, there is no clear understanding of which desires are true and which aren't. How do I control and guide the passions within me? Should they be restricted at all? And what is harmful and what isn't? There's no idea about this. And here comes the gospel. And the gospel says, only under the submission of the Holy Spirit, your physical and spiritual can come together. And in that, you can experience the truest version of who you really are. Because God will guide that. Now we say that. We can say that with words. We must say that with words. But we also say it with our actions when we pursue a holy lifestyle. And we subdue our flesh. And we live according to the Spirit. What we're saying is that the pursuit of passions does not lead to happiness. And everybody will learn that at some point, but we already know. So live according to the Spirit. So my application point to all of us, to me as much as it is to you, is do we preach Christ by submitting our flesh to the Holy Spirit? Do we live that kind of life of submission, of humility, of servanthood, where our desires are recalibrated by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, first was submission of flesh to spirit. Secondly, there's submission of individuals to institutions. In verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do do good. Peter calls Christians to participate in good institutions, God-given human institutions, as a way of pursuing good and opposing evil for the whole community. And in this lies true freedom. Now, in the Christian teaching, loving others means not only having a loving attitude to a particular person in your life. It means that, but it means more than that. It also means supporting systems that have the potential to promote flourishing of the whole society. Christians are by calling institutional. Of course, no human institution is perfect. And Peter is not saying necessarily that there is no time to improve a human institution or there is no time to even oppose a human institution. The Bible talks about that. And we have to be careful to balance this teaching with the rest of the teaching of the Bible. There are times when Christians disobeyed authorities, and that is appropriate at times. But the general teaching of the Bible is to affirm God-given authorities of the government, the police, those kinds of things. No human institution is perfect. And yet, humility... It's always necessary for our participation. Submitting to those who are in authority over us 
even when they're not right, and honoring them rather than undermining them shows the world our concern for the well-being of the whole community. The world insists that everyone must be a leader called to change the world. That's what, that's, this is the message you hear every day. There's no message about being a servant. It's just a message of being a leader because through your leadership, you will change the world. But the gospel presents a vision of change based on participation. In the world, freedom is antithetical to submission. You can't be free and submit at the same time. To be free is to rebel, to blaze your own trail, to lead your own movement. But according to the gospel, we find freedom in submission and participation. First to Christ, our new master, right, who enables us to die to sin, to those passions of our nature. And to live to righteousness, to figure out what the right desires are and how to live them out in the world. But secondly, it's submission to other people, including human institutions, including emperors and presidents and judges and elders and parents and traffic lights and those kinds of things. Because there's something that is particularly Christian in affirming the institutional nature of human well-being. How does Jesus describe his work, his movement, his new world that he wants to bring in? What does he say it is? He says it's a kingdom. It's a kingdom. A kingdom is an administrative institution with the military, with law enforcement, with laws, with judges. So in Jesus' mind, what he's bringing is not just personal freedom, Yes, of course he's bringing that. But he's also bringing freedom that affects the whole society. And so for a Christian to be anti-institutional is to not understand the nature of what God is trying to do through Christ. Any Christian that promotes anarchy, that says there should be no king, cannot correlate it with the gospel. Because the gospel proclaims the kingdom The gospel proclaims that there is a king. There is one true king. And he is a king of kings, other kings. He is the lord of lords, other lords. It presupposes an institutional character of humanity. Any Christian who says, I am my own king, and I submit to no other king, misunderstands the gospel. Because in the gospel, in the kingdom, there is only one king. You're not a king. There's only one king, and that's Jesus, and you submit to him. And because of him, for his sake, you submit to any other human institution designed by him. I think this is what Martin Luther meant when he said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to of all subject to all. It's amazing that you can put those two ideas together and actually consistently live it out. Because as a Christian, because I follow Jesus, I am free. I am free. I report only to him. And he's a master. He's the kind of master that gives me real freedom. So my slavery to him is real freedom. So I live in that. 
But at the same time, I can now obey and submit to all sorts of people, all sorts of authorities, all sorts of institutions without feeling that my rights are being infringed upon. Freedom in Christ and yet submission to others. Now, do you think that your life, if you examine your life, do you seek the good of the whole community by participating in good, God-given human institutions? Or do you only do that when it suits you, when it suits your interests, your agenda? Because Peter says, honor the emperor. And by the way, the emperor he's talking about, it, not a great guy. And whatever we may say about today and and I don't know, maybe somebody will come back to me and say, but yeah, pastor, but you don't know what's really going on in the world right now. How can we submit? Well, I will tell you that whatever Peter is talking about here is much worse than anything we can imagine today. And yet Peter in this context says submit to every human institution, including the emperor, including the governors, including judges. Because by doing that, we are communicating the gospel. We're clarifying it. We're saying true freedom is a restricted freedom. You need the right master to be free. You cannot be without a master, so you need the right master. And submitting to God is expressed in submitting to other people. Number three, submission to unjust suffering. I think this is the hardest of the three. Submission of the flesh to spirit. There's submission to human institutions, and now there's submission to unjust suffering. Verses 18 and 19. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter is talking about household slaves. He encourages Christian slaves, Christian servants, to endure suffering when their masters treat them unfairly. I want us to see the gravity of what he's saying here. And then he says, it's a gracious thing. It's a gracious thing in God's sight when we suffer unjustly. To the world which can only respond to suffering with outrage, the gospel presents a vision of suffering well. It derives meaning by placing suffering in the sight of God and claiming that God bestows grace on those who suffer unjustly. The world calls us to insist on our rights at all costs, but the gospel says that giving up our rights brings us closer to God and gives us ability to endure suffering. The gospel calls us to prioritize God's favor over human approval and enables us to use our suffering in a way to serve others and direct them to God. Now listen to one commentator. He says, Such respectful submission is a gracious thing, which is to say something that elicits divine blessing. Peter has in mind those who place a higher value on God's approval than on earthly vindication. After all, there is nothing extraordinary in suffering provoked by one's sin. What credit is it? But to endure unjust suffering, as Christ did, is especially pleasing to God. 
When the unbeliever sees the believer persevere under undeserved mistreatment, he is compelled to ask, what kind of God could sustain this depth of devotion? By suffering unjustly, by suffering well, we're clarifying the gospel, and we're presenting the gospel as a means for someone to learn to endure suffering as well. Now, I have a friend whose brother, uh, because of a medical procedure that was not done well, I don't know if it was botched, it was something, something went wrong, and something it seems like was not done well. His brother, early in his life, was tremendously affected by that, and the rest of his life lives with severe disability, which changes the whole life of the family, as you know. The parents decided not to sue the hospital. They could have. They had basis for it. They probably would have won. But they decided not to do that and accept that as unjust suffering. That's unjust. It was something was done wrong to them. They were wrong. But they decided to accept it for Christ's sake because they considered it to be a gracious thing. That's an example of a Christian suffering unjustly and at the same time seeing that as something that is gracious, something that is powerful, something that God gives us grace for, and something that God uses to proclaim the gospel. Sometimes for someone to get to Christ, they must first walk all over a Christian. On their way to Christ, they will trample a couple Christians. The question is for us, are we okay with that? Am I okay to be a Christian that will have to give up his rights and suffer unjustly and take one on the chin so that somebody might catch a glimpse of Christ and maybe come to him? I think an incredibly important question for the church to answer today is this. Are we willing to suffer like Christ? Not are we willing to suffer, but are we willing to suffer in a way that reflects Christ's suffering? To do it like Him. Are we willing to endure unjust suffering and call it a gracious thing and see God's purpose and God's presence in it? Are we willing to see our unjust suffering as in some way redemptive because it might help others to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ? And that brings me to my last point. The gospel we explain, the gospel we present through serving and submitting to others is not just a set of ideas or a set of moral principles or a set of political ideas. It is a portrait of a person. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the person of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, who he is, what he's done for us. That is the gospel. So if you want to clarify the gospel for the world, if you want to present the gospel to the world, it has to be about Jesus. It has to be like him. I wonder if, you, if we should just replace the word Christian with the word Christ-like, or like Jesus, or something like that, where somebody would ask you, well, what religion are you? And you would say, I am like Jesus. 
I am like, like Christ. And in that way, it would be impossible for us to correlate any behavior that is unlike Jesus to our identity as a Christian. So whatever we portray about Christianity, if it is not in line with who Jesus is and what he has done, it's, it's not right. It can't be right. We are followers of Jesus. Our witness is to him, not to some other com complex set of ideas, but it is to him, to the person. All our teachings come from him. We follow him. Now look at verse 21. This is exactly what Peter says. For to this you have been called. You've been called to this submissive, unjust suffering in the world. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Any questions to this verse? How should you live? How should you suffer? Like Jesus. You can't make it any clearer. The word translated example, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for us to follow. This word example was used to refer to a pattern of letters used, used to teach children to write. So it will be a template, a pattern of letters of the alphabet that children would be tracing, learning how to write. Karen Jobes, the commentator, says, it suggests the closest of copies. English words such as example, model, or pattern are too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model, as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. If Christians are to live as servants of God, the essence of that identity is a willingness to suffer unjustly as Jesus did, exemplifying in suffering the same attitude and behavior he did. Jesus Christ left us this pattern over which we are to trace out our lives in order that we might follow in his footsteps. This is a strong image associating the Christian's life with the life of Christ. For one cannot step into the footsteps of Jesus and head off in any other direction than the direction he took. And his footsteps lead to the cross, through the grave, and onward to glory. Look at verses 22, 23, and 24. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Friends, this is the template. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to live as elect exiles in the world. This is how we are to portray the gospel, the person of Jesus to the world. It's by living like him, by actually suffering the way he suffered. Jesus calls us to the way of submission because he himself lived it. And as his submission resulted in the gospel being presented to many, many people and led to many, many people being returned to God 
their true shepherd. So should our submission spread the gospel in our own time and culture. Look at him. What a savior. He did not submit to the flesh, did he? He submitted to the spirit. Did he not pray for the Father's will to be done even though it meant that he would be put on the cross? Wasn't that a struggle between the flesh and the spirit? Did he not bear our sins in his body on the tree? Notice the physical language of that. Did he not heal us by his wounds? Did Jesus not submit to the verdict of a human court and the power of the empire, human institutions, all the while entrusting himself to the true judge? Did Jesus not suffer unjustly? God became a slave and was treated unjustly. He did not commit any evil. There was no trickery in his mouth. And yet he was punished. But he did not revile in return. He did not threaten. He did not insist on his own rights. Crucifixion in the Roman world was reserved for slaves and rebellious non-citizens. If you were a Roman citizen, you would not be crucified. Jesus was crucified as a slave, as a rebel. And God endured that for our sake. And God considers it a gracious thing because by his suffering, we are healed. We are restored to God. We were strained like sheep, but because of Jesus, his sacrificial submission, we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can live in submission and servanthood for him. For the sake of Jesus, will you live as God's servants, as his elect exiles in view of the hostile world? Will you present the gospel clearly through your submission and servanthood, through submitting your flesh to the Holy Spirit, through submitting yourself to good institutions and graciously enduring unjust suffering?